Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Merry post-Christmas Day. It is such a joy to be with you, and I am just thrilled about our guest speaker this morning, who is a dear friend of Crosspoint, Jonathan Mosley and his wife, Chelsea have planted a church in Boston, as Robert alluded to, Kings Hill, along with their three daughters, Liliana, Oriah, and Micaiah. And Jonathan is originally, you might be wondering, how did we get connected with this church planner up in Boston? Well, Jonathan is originally from Columbus. And through a few just mutual friends, we got connected to him several years ago as he was planting this church and have begun this partnership and really just this deep gospel friendship with Jonathan and Chelsea and Kings Hill Church. And now we're actually kind of formally connected. Jonathan planted this church with a network called the Pillar Network, which we have just associated with over the last month or so, a group of like-minded churches like us that are just combining resources uh, for gospel partnerships. So we're delighted not only to be informally connected with Jonathan, but formally connected with him and his, his church in that way. But Jonathan is originally from Columbus. He went to the University of Georgia, which is a small college up in the north uh, east corner of our state, if you haven't heard of it yet. And then he went away to seminary in Boston, where while he was in seminary in Boston, uh, felt the call to plant Kings Hill Church, really in a strange, unique place in America, a place where centuries ago at the beginning of our nation was really just a kind of stronghold, a beacon for gospel witness. But over the centuries, has become really devoid in many ways of gospel witness and has now become one of the most difficult places, not only in America, but in, in the entire world to plant a church. And you've heard Jonathan maybe a few times visit us on Sunday morning and just give a brief update in our Sunday morning service. And if you listen to, uh, if you read some of his updates via email, you know that the past few years has been difficult, significant challenges, opposition, but yet a thriving gospel church is being planted in the heart of one of the most influential cities in America, if not the world, with so many universities and so many cultural things happening there. And it's just a delight to have him with us this morning. Now, Jonathan is one of those type of young men that really could, he has the type of gifting, and I can say this, and he's not going to want me to say this, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm older than you, Jonathan, and I can pretty much say whatever I want to right now. <laughs> Jonathan is one of those type of young men, very early on from meeting him, that struck me as just one of these guys that has a kind of gifting from the Lord where he could really do just about anything. He's the type of young man that could uh, go to an existing church and kind of cut his teeth there and then become a, a, a pastor of, of very large churches in, in other places. But he is using, along with his dear sweet wife Chelsea and their three children, he is spending, he's using what the Lord has given him in a very challenging place for the gospel. Not every place is challenging. Every place is challenging. The pastor of a very large church and the pastor of a church in plant in Boston, everywhere is difficult for the gospel. We understand that. But I, I am so thankful for Jonathan and his ministry and his friendship, his gifts, and the gospel grit that he and his wife have shown and are showing. And I'm so thankful for you, Crosspoint, for being so generous in your giving that we can come alongside uh, people like this. Now, I'm going to ask him to come up here in a second, and I'm going to ask you to warmly welcome him. 
And maybe because I read the Puritans so much, I get a little, I get a little anxious when we clap for people when we win a service because it just feels sort of not God-oriented. But here's how, here's how I'm going to handle that internal conflict, okay? I'm going to ask you to warmly welcome Jonathan. And as we warmly welcome him, which in our culture is usually kind of signified through a, like a, pl- a round of applause, let's do it in thanks to the Lord for the work in Boston, in Kings Hill, for this couple and their sacrifice and what the Lord is doing through them for the glory of his name and for the good of souls. I am so delighted. Now, Jonathan texted me a couple weeks ago and he said, I'm going to be in town. And I felt bad for asking him to preach on a vacation Sunday, but not bad enough to where I didn't want you to hear from this guy. (laughs) So join me in welcoming our dear brother and gospel partner, Jonathan Mosley. Well, good morning. It definitely does my heart a lot of good to worship with you today. Uh, This is our first time for me being back in Columbus for five years for for Christmas. And so the first time the grandparents have spent a holiday with the kids, and I gotta say, it's pretty tempting to not want to come back here. Uh, Got to escape the weather in Boston for a little bit. It's been so nice. But in more ways than I can express, uh, Crosspoint Columbus is holding up our arms in the work that's happening in Boston and the work that we're engaged with there in the city. And so in addition to me saying Merry Christmas, just want to echo what uh, Pastor Brad has said. Let me also extend a personal thank you for the many ways that you guys are supporting the work in the city. Now at Kings Hill, I'm going to dive into Kings Hill. We started the book of First Peter back in September and we'll soon be finishing it up in the next few weeks. But what the Apostle Peter keeps coming back to again and again and again is this one word. It's almost in every single chapter and it's this, it's hope. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. And as we look back over 2021, it's, it's excitement, it's, it's joys, it's heartbreaks, it's sorrows. And also as we look ahead to 2022 and knowing this year will also bring that same spectrum of emotions, I find it fitting that we would let the Apostle Peter encourage us with the hope that we have in Christ. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 3 through 5 this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And while you turn there, let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to talk about the hope we have in you. I pray, God, that your word would stir in our hearts this this longing, this conviction of the inheritance that you have waiting for us. And God, that you would move our hearts towards that so that we would be bold and generous and free in this world here and now because our hearts and our minds are fixed on this inheritance that you've promised. So be with us now as we open up your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter begins this letter and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pause there for just a second. I promise we'll get to the rest. But, but Peter here is so bold in his assertion because he calls God the Father, the Father of Jesus, which sounds simple enough. But do you remember what got Jesus killed? Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God, making himself equal to God. And 
for the zealous Jewish leaders like the Pharisees, this was blasphemy. How dare Jesus put himself on the same level as God? It wasn't the, the healings that got under the skin of these religious leaders, it was the claim to authority that Jesus asserted. And the Peter of the past, he actually had denied Jesus in his hour of need. And Peter had followed Jesus after his arrest, followed him to the temple courts, and Jesus there was put on trial. And when questioned as to whether or not Peter belonged to Jesus, he denied that he belonged to Christ. He was afraid of what would become of him. And so in verse three, you have this once cowering, retreating Peter making the same claims that led to Jesus' crucifixion. I just want to take a moment to address those in the room that maybe for the first time you're exploring Christianity. Maybe you visited family in Columbus and they go to Cross Point and so you came with them today and you might be wondering what is it that separates Christianity from all the other world religions out there? From Islam, from the Jewish faith, from Buddhism, from Hinduism. Here's the difference. Maybe you've heard this before. See, all other major world religions place God at the top of this mountain, man at the bottom, and every other world religion says, if you want to get to God, top of the mountain, you got to be this climber. You have to work your way up to God. So for the, for the Jews, you have the Old Testament, you got to follow the Torah. Got to make sure you adhere to every single law. For the Muslim, you have to adhere to the five pillars of Islam. For Buddhism, there's these eight steps to enlightenment. For the Hindu, it's you live the best life you can and get reborn and reincarnated and after this happens time and time again, you finally reach nirvana. You see, every single major world religion has man as the one that has to find somehow their way to God and you're left wondering at the end of your life, have I done enough to be with God? And yet the God of Christianity, if you're exploring that this morning, the God of Christianity is set apart because he knows that our efforts at our own righteousness will always fall short. We cannot get to God by going up the mountain. And the celebration of Christmas that we just talked about yesterday and celebrated yesterday is that God the Father sent his son into the world to live a perfect life of obedience that we could never live and receive the judgment of our sins that we deserved. And God did this so that we could be adopted as his children. So at the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of Christmas is the God who comes down from the mountain because we can't come up. So God who comes down rescues us by his grace and brings us to his presence where we can be with him forever. Now that's not our doing that's God's doing. And so Peter writes, he begins this letter by expressing this outburst of praise. He says, blessed be the God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by praising God and blessed means to say a good word about. We see the first reason why there's this outburst of praise in verse three. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and you see where this praise is rooted from. He says, according, in verse three, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. 
I love, it's humbling to read a verse like that. Caused, really? Yeah, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Salvation is of God. The, the apostle Paul would write about salvation this way in Ephesians 1, chapter 4. Paul writes, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before you, you were even a thought in your parents' minds, before God spoke the universe into existence, before you were given a name or even had a will, he had already chosen you. That's the significance behind before the foundation of the world. It's, it's so humbling that fall on your knees that we just sang about, it's so humbling to know that there is no I in salvation. Because underneath my believing of Jesus is God giving me faith. Underneath the heart that loves God is the great surgeon who transformed the heart in the first place. My will was dead, was enslaved, was blinded to the glory of God, not free, and as a result, it was impossible to choose God, and yet the one who does have this sovereign free will is God and him alone, and in his sovereign free will, he set his love on us to save us from our sin and make us his own. So that's the first reason why Peter can't help but have this outburst of praise why well, he starts off the letter writing it in this way, but there's a second reason that he begins to now praise God and it has everything to do with hope. So let's read verses three through five, all of them together now. This is what he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now there are three beautiful truths that I hope that our heart can grasp this morning around hope. The first one is this. This hope that we have in Christ, number one is living, Number two, this hope is glorious. And number three, this hope is protected. Now as we look at hope in the Bible, especially in First Peter, hope is not this vague wish. You could hope not to wait for seating at the restaurant after the service. This expresses a desire or a wish, but there's still a level of uncertainty involved. You're not sure if you'll have to wait or not, but that's not how the Bible talks about hope. Hope is not merely a wish, but it's, it's a conviction. Hope is this, this certain and solid expectation, usually with joy, looking towards the future. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he, he writes that this hope, first and foremost, is living. Now there is an objective reality when we talk about hope. There's an objective reality in which our hope is grounded in, namely the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the dead. You see that. There's a living hope 
Jesus is the living hope through the resurrection. So if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. But Jesus did rise from the grave. Jesus did walk out of the tomb. Jesus did appear to more than 500 witnesses providing convincing proofs of his resurrection. There's no cemetery by which we bring flowers to the gravesite. He's risen from the dead. What hope do you have in sin and death? We say with conviction and with confidence, all the hope in the world. I'm joined together and brought in union with this victorious, mighty, overcoming Savior who defeated sin, Satan, and death. His victory is my victory. So our hope is not, praise God, is not connected to a fairy tale story or some sort of philosophy or some sort of mystical out-of-body experience, but it is rooted in the historically verified Resurrection, it is connected to a living person, Jesus Christ himself. But this hope is not just living because it's rooted in the objective reality outside of us, but it is living because it is a hope that lives within us. Recalling Peter's words again, he says, you have been born again, born again to a living hope. So what makes this hope living? Yes, first, because Jesus is living. That's objectively true, but also because you are alive to that truth. This is the miracle of the new birth, the the awakening to Jesus' beauty, to his worth, to his majesty. It was not humanly manufactured. It was not decided upon. God did this. In Boston, right beside where our church meets, we have this uh, museum of fine arts. You can go in and look at paintings. And we try to explain this idea that our love for God wasn't humanly decided upon by mentioning this museum. Imagine you're blind and you walk into the museum and someone says, "Is is that painting beautiful in front of you? You can't decide if it's beautiful or not. You can't see it. You have no vision to the painting that's in front of you. And yet this is how our wills are described. Enslaved, dead, blind. We're blinded to the glory that's in front of us unless, unless God supernaturally and divinely shines light into the eyes of our heart. So now that we can see Jesus for who he really is. And God has done this. Jesus is alive objectively, but this truth that is now your personal possession, it's yours because God has made you alive to that truth. God in his power worked a miracle by raising Jesus from the dead and in his mercy, in his mercy, according to his great mercy, he's chose to work a miracle in us by that same power so that we would see Jesus and treasure him and uh, cherish him because our hope is living. Two miracles there. Miracle of the resurrection, the miracle of the new birth, both make hope living. Reasons to praise God. But here's where we take a step back and and almost heed a warning 
that were given in scripture because there are many hopes that we can cling to, but they're not living. Many hopes that we can have our hearts wrap their its arms around, but it's, it's not living, it's a, it's a dead hope. Much of our church is made up of college students. There's 10 universities within a square mile of us. And so we spend a great time, great deal of time asking the question, for those that are considering the, the path for the rest of their lives, we ask them, what's going to be the driving force for your life? What's going to be your mission? Because here's the thing, the answer to what is driving you to wake up in the mornings, the answer to what is animating, getting you out of the bed, moving to and from, the answer to what's the mission, what's the drive, it's tied to your hope. It's tied to your hope. Imagine an Olympic runner. The runner goes through Disciplined training, their diet is carefully watched, their days are planned to the T, and sometimes they forego social parties and vacations. They can even spend months away from family as they train. Why do they make all these sacrifices? Why do they watch their lives so closely? Because they want nothing more than to represent their country on some world stage holding up a medal. Their lives revolve around what their hope is, and they're willing to go to extreme lengths to see it achieved. And the reality is, is that we, we chase what we crave. We beckon to whatever our hearts find beautiful. We walk to whatever our hearts find most worthy. You see an illustration of this in scripture. I love when you don't have to make up illustrations. The Bible just gives you them. And so you, you see an illustration of this in scripture that provides both this encouragement and warning all in one scene. And it comes from John chapter 12, verses one through six. I'll read that for us. Talking about the dead hope versus the living hope. So this is John here. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth about a year's wages. In verse six, he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used, he used this money to help himself to what was put into it. So on one hand, on one hand you have Mary who does something extraordinary. She takes this expensive perfume, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. This was an entire year's worth of savings. I, mean, I wonder what would be worthy enough for some of us to hand over an entire year's worth of our savings well, when you find something valuable enough, you'll do it. And she had. Jesus was her treasure. Jesus was her hope. And Judas, on the other hand, was the treasurer during Jesus' ministry. And here in John, he's the most vocal about his displeasure seeing this flask emptied on Jesus. And sadly, as we know, he's the one who betrays Jesus for a quick buck. Man, man, how could someone get to the place where they betray the Son of God? How does someone get to the place where they decide to aid in someone's murder? 
Because that doesn't happen overnight. It begins with delighting in something other than God, which leads to desires in opposition to God, which then leads to a direction that has you running away from God. Isn't that the wisdom of Proverbs? Delight yourself in the Lord, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. So it goes delight, then desires, and then direction. If your hope is in God, it leads you to be sold out for him. If your hope is in money or anything else, it leads you to sell out God for something far less valuable. This is why the encouragement comes to us from Paul in his letter to 1 Timothy as he's, his protege, Timothy, as he's trying to equip him and raise him up as a leader of the church. He says this, he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant nor, nor to put their hope, hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So Paul writes, don't put your hope in wealth, put your hope in God. And why does Paul emphasize hope? Because hope is what you consider at the end of the finish line. It's your treasure, it's your prize. Whatever your hope is sets the course for the race you're running. Your your treasure determines your travel. And, And many in this world live with the wrong hope. They're charting their lives in such a way as to get the prize that their heart has that's not Christ. And what's so tragic about this is that they could spend their whole lives chasing whatever it is they put at the finish line apart from Christ and never get it. But even if they did, even if they did, they can't enjoy it forever. Nor does it have the power to save them from their sin. Nor can it bring them into God's presence happily and forever. The very thing they believe to be the silver bullet to happiness and restfulness will turn on them and it will be the very thing that separates them eternally for the one who promised all of that. See, only Jesus, only Jesus is the living hope. And as if to save us from the traps that this world puts out for us, he draws now, Peter, he draws our attention not just to the living hope, but to the glory of this hope. This hope is living, but it's also glorious. Let's look at what he says in verses three through four now with special attention to verse four. This is what Peter writes. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay, so that's the living part. Now we're talking about the glory of this hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead to an inheritance, here it is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One of my favorite verses in scripture. Paul draws our heart now to this inheritance. Now, for believers who are familiar with the Old Testament, this would not have been a new concept. The Israelites, after being rescued from Egypt, and after being rescued from Pharaoh's oppressive regime, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. They were considered sojourners. But God had promised this special land that he had prepared for them to settle. And he called this land their inheritance. This was just for them. 
And in the new covenant established by Jesus, we also have an inheritance that is promised and prepared for us, and it's a glorious inheritance. So look how Peter describes it now. First, he says that this glorious hope is imperishable, which speaks to the durability of this inheritance. Tungsten is the strongest metal on earth. Didn't know that until looking it up. Even stronger than steel. It's used to make missiles. It's used to make bullets. But even tungsten, as strong as it is, it has a melting point. Every single metal, including this one, has some sort of melting point. Now, granted, it's like 6,200 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's going to take a little bit. But you give it enough pressure and you give it enough heat and it will break down. And Peter says, this hope, this inheritance that God has waiting for you, it's eternal. There's no decaying, there's no breakdowns, there's no end to this inheritance. It's imperishable. And then he keeps going to the glorious inheritance. He said it's not just imperishable, but it's undefiled, which means it's speaking now to the purity of this inheritance meaning nothing's going to taint it. Maybe you've been to a wedding. So glorious to to watch is two people, man and woman come together in covenant. God is the witness and people, glorious thing to watch. But even weddings, as wonderful as they are, as awesome as they are, they can't offer unbridled joy and happiness. Maybe some of the pictures are off, like at our wedding. Maybe there was someone you had hoped would be there but couldn't make it. Maybe some detail was off. If you think long and hard enough, you'd admit, it was great, but I'll concede it wasn't perfect. Because in this world, there's always some sort of mix between joy and sorrow. On this side of paradise, we rarely get unbridled, unadulterated joy. There's always some sort of mix between sorrow and joy because we live in a sin-cursed world. And even if there was such thing as a perfect joy, it would spoil over the worries of tomorrow or the distraction of our thoughts or from the sins of others. In other words, you're not going to get 100% purity. But when it comes to the inheritance that God has promised, we will. And then Peter gives one more descriptor to this glorious inheritance. He says it's unfading, which speaks now to the beauty of our hope. One of mine, Chelsea's favorite traditions in Boston is we love to go to a sunflower field about 45 minutes away from the city. It's great to just get out of the the concrete jungle of Boston and see some green grass. We have a yard that our kids have been playing in this week. It's been great. We drive to the sunflower field and it's just acres and acres of sunflowers. It's so breathtaking to see, but we missed it this year, first time in many years. And the reason we missed it is because, you might know this, a a sunflower's bloom only lasts a couple of weeks. That's it. There's like a two-week window and if you miss it, you're done for a whole year. What What a wonderful parable here because God has clothed this sunflower with a certain beauty. It's amazing. These in, outside of the city, they stand about 10, 12 feet tall. God's clothed the beauty of these fields, but it, it does come with an expiration date to it. 
And the point that Peter makes is that the glories of heaven will grow every more radiant with each passing moment for all of eternity. Our, our bodies, the way they are presently wired, they cannot constantly take in joy without some law of diminishing return. Plus, our bodies just grow bored or, or tired. The ability to absorb beauty can be hindered by our frame, our weaknesses. But included in this hope that we're talking about comes these resurrected bodies with new capacities for enjoyment. And when we're in place in front of God, we'll experience infinite beauty. And heaven is where joy, your joy, increases moment after moment for all eternity because you're constantly in all learning something new about God. Every sense will be satisfied, overflowing with delight. You'll never grow bored in heaven. This hope, what I'm trying to say is, this hope is unfading. It's unfading. And it does us well to think deeply and at length about this glorious hope. To think about one day throwing off this mortal body, being clothed by God in immortality. To think about actually reigning with Christ. Like you're an heir of grace. You will reign with him one day. And Jesus' dominion and authority will stretch across the entire Cosmo and he will bestow on us crowns and we'll rule with him over the new heavens and the new earth. This hope is beyond what we can ask or imagine. It's a glorious hope. You might have heard it say that when we're too heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good and the opposite is true. That the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we'll be. Because when I think about this hope, this hope frees me. When I know what's waiting for me, this hope frees me to take bold risks in the name of love for Christ's kingdom. Because the worst thing that could ever happen to me on earth is death. And death just brings me into possession of this inheritance that's waiting for me. Hope drives out fear. But this, this hope also frees me to be generous. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where th thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. So when my my heart and my mind are fixed on this inheritance waiting for me, I am happy to let go of any earthly treasure now for Jesus' sake that will perish knowing that there will be a, a greater treasure for me waiting when I get there because there's a laying up, this storing up of treasure. So this hope of knowing what awaits me frees me to be radically generous. But hope also empowers me for godly living. Because when the eyes of my heart are enamored and fixed on heaven and the joy that awaits, I'm not going to be deterred from the right or the left. I'm totally captivated by Jesus at the finish line. Why would I run off course? If I'm heading home from work, why would I stop at McDonald's on the way home when I know Chelsea is preparing a slab of ribs, barbecue? Georgia. It's this hope that allows me to say no 
to worldly temptations. So you, I just ask, and myself included, do we want power over sin? Do we want to be free so we can be radically generous? Do we want this holy ambition that aims to make much of Jesus and change the world? If you want any of that, then we must think about this glorious hope that Peter is writing about. So this hope is living and it's glorious. And finally, this hope is guarded. Look with me at verses four and five. Peter writes, he says, this inheritance that is imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfading, that's kept in heaven for you. Verse five, who by God's power you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I, I want us to see this because in, in verse four, this inheritance, this hope that Peter's talking about, he says that this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you, which means this inheritance is not in jeopardy. It's not hanging in the balance. No matter how shaky our world feels at times or the events that are happening around us in the world, nothing, not Satan himself, is going to be touching the inheritance that's awaiting God's children. Liana, our oldest, she's in love with her baby doll. She got like five of them with the grandparents we're definitely not gonna be able to take all of those back on the plane. But she's not allowed to play with her, her toys during snack time, so we say no toys at the table. And if you're wondering if a pastor brings in the alliteration beyond the pulpit into parenting, they do. So we say, we say no toys at the table. So if, if I'm around, she'll come running to me and she'll hand me the baby doll and, and she'll say something like, daddy, daddy, will you keep this safe for me? Will you keep this safe for me? And she'll hand it over. I'll, I'll put the baby doll either by my desk or on the couch, wherever I am. And she runs off to snack time because there is not a worry in the world for her whether or not that doll is going to be there when she gets back. And so it is with our inheritance. It is in the hands of an omnipotent God that inheritance is being kept for you. But also, it's not just the inheritance that's being guarded. Notice what else is being guarded. In verse four, look with me. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This powerful, sovereign God is not only keeping your inheritance safe, but he's also keeping you. Not only is it God who performs the miracle of new birth by giving you faith, but he sustains this miracle moment by moment by keeping your faith alive like a bonfire someone might experience in the fall. God has set your fire on heart, has set your heart on fire for him, but he's the one that's also tending this fire so that it doesn't go out. It's amazing. And there may be falls from grace and setbacks and times of backsliding from time to time, but if God chose you in him, if God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, there is nothing that can ultimately take you away from him. Now remember the one who's writing this, it's Peter. And remember what Jesus says of Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, I'll read it for you. 
Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan has come to Jesus and has said, can I have Peter? Can he be mine? Can I sift Peter like wheat? And the point of sifting is that Satan hopes to remove the faith of Peter. If he can remove Peter's faith, then he'll remove Peter from God's presence. But Satan can only do what Jesus allows and Jesus draws a line. He will allow Peter to deny him three times, but he will not allow Peter to fail utterly. Jesus has prayed to his father and God is keeping Peter's faith so it does not fail. Now surely there are some who at first appear to have faith, but time shows that God has really not worked the miracle in their hearts, but rest assured, if God has worked the miracle of new birth, this miracle is irreversible. You are forever his. Can you see why Peter here can't help but burst out in praise when he says, blessed be the God. He's experienced God's amazing, patient mercy. He's experienced God's strong keeping firsthand. And I imagine there's someone in this morning, you're thinking to yourself, I hear what you're talking about when it comes to hope, but I just don't know if I can make it. I feel at the end of my rope, I don't know if I can keep going. My faith feels so weak. My life feels so out of control. My life feels so dark. And if that's you this morning, these verses are for you. This living, glorious, guarded inheritance, this hope of heaven, it is yours. It is yours. A couple of months ago, I went I went in with uh, just a basic MRI, but it was an MRI with contrast. And as this contrast was injected, within about 30 seconds, my body went into anaphylactic shock and I, I couldn't breathe. So you have this little button for an emergency and it was definitely an emergency. And so they threw me onto a stretcher, they rushed me to the ER, popped me with different shots about 10 people around this stretcher, and I asked one of the doctors, I said, yeah, I just, this is a basic MRI, so I'm, everything's going through my head here with the girls and Chelsea, and I just asked the doctor, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna make it? And she said, of course you are. You're in a hospital, and we have you. And I just want us to hear those words as if God were talking to us this morning. God, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Of course you are. You are mine. And nothing can separate you from my love. That's the hope that we have that God has prepared and promised us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
we need this hope that Peter lays out for us, this living, glorious, guarded hope. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on all that you've promised for us and that it would free us to live in a way that makes much of you. God, make you the treasure, what's at the end of the finish line. And let us walk now worthy of the gospel, worthy of this hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.